dreamlike worlds, the macabre, mystery, and imagination, all inspired symbolist playwright Maurice Maeterlinck in creating Peleus et Melisande. Listen as Dr. Michael Hackett discusses the transition from symbolist play to opera in this recording made as part of LA Opera Connect's professional development series for teachers, Opera for Educators. Tickets to Debussy's only opera are available now at laopera.org. It's a pleasure to be here, so thank you for inviting me this morning. Maurice Metterlink is the playwright who provided the source for this opera. Metterlink was born August 29th, 1862 in Ghent, Belgium, and he died in Nice, France in 1949, and he wrote in French. His play Peleus and Millicent was the basis for Claude Debussy's opera by the same name. When Maeterlinck wrote Peleus and Melisande, he was already a famous, if you could even say very famous, author of essays, poetry, puppet plays, and poetic dramas. And it's a pleasure to speak about Maeterlinck because he's a very important playwright of the late 19th, early 20th centuries. His work anticipated almost every avant-garde movement of the 20th century. And looking in hindsight, it's, it's astonishing some of his other plays in terms of their sensibility. They seem to have been created by Achim Fryer or Robert Wilson, uh, advanced, you would say, or avant-garde directors that have worked for the uh, LA Opera. I've always loved this play since I first saw it as Peleus and Melisande when I was 16 years old. It was a summer night near the Potomac River, and somehow the play merged in my imagination with the outdoor setting, and it remains vivid in my mind. It was one of the most pleasurable events I experienced uh, in the theater. Maeterlinck was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1911. And I even say to my colleagues, Maeterlinck, and they say, who? And then they say, oh, Debussy, but not actually knowing what uh, Maeterlinck has done. He was one of the leading members of the symbolist movement. The Poetry Foundation, that's my source, describes the symbolist movement in this way. A group of late 19th century writers, including Arthur Rimbaud and Stéphane uh, Mallarmé, who favored dreams, visions, and associative powers of the imagination in their poetry, meaning not descriptive poetry, but poetry of emotion, poetry of feeling, of sensibilité, and also of the senses. Uh, so it, it was... Um, a different kind of poetry than the poetry that had followed before this. There were also symbolist artists, painters, sculptures, stage designers, playwrights. All the arts were directly or tangentially involved in some way with uh, symbolism. I should also say that what the symbolists had in common were an attraction to Edgar Allan Poe, Baudelaire translated uh, many of Poe's poems. Baudelaire was another key person in this conversation. And then Wagner. Uh, W.C. would, I think, not be fully happy if he were associated with Wagner. But the idea of Wagnerism, of the uh, Gesamtkunstwerk, the total artwork of integrating music and dance and movement and scenery and color, this 
is a Wagnerian idea that translates into the symbolist um, movement. Uh, Stefan Mallarmé, who was also an important person at this time, he believed that the theater should be an evocation of mystery and mood through poetic language. So you've already heard that in symbolist poetry, but this has to do with the writing of theater itself. So an evocation of mystery and mood. So I come to you and say, what is this play about? And you say, it's not about anything, it's about mood. Uh, there were some symbolists that even sprayed perfume into the audience or colored mists. And so the, there was a famous dancer, Loa Fuller. She would be in a room like this, let's say, and on four sides there would be silk walls. She would dance in the center and the walls would change colors. Uh, she was uh, popular in the American psychedelic movement, not that she was living, but the idea of Loa Fuller from all that time before was, uh, was, was very important and important in this uh, conversation. Now, his work, meaning Maeterlinck's work, was taken up by a man named Aurelien Marie Lunier, who was a, 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 an actor, a producer, and a director. And he loved Edgar Allan Poe so much that he gave himself the name Poe. So he was Aurelien Marie Lunier Poe. <laughs> And uh, it's not dissimilar, possibly, in the way young artists back in the Renaissance, in the early Renaissance, changed their name into Latin names. Famous uh, designer in England named himself Inigo Jones, Inigo for Ignatius or Ignazio or something like that. So you would, change, you would change your name to show that you were part of the hip group that was reading Latin and Greek and reviving interest in, in that period. So he ran a theater called the Théâtre de Leuve, and he, I think it's important to give you an idea of the milieu, uh, he shared an apartment with three post-impressionists, Vuillard, Denis, and Bonnard. So they were saying the same things, that our painting should be about mystery, about imagination. Sometimes mystery even me meant for them the macabre or the concealed or the hidden or the hermetic world worlds of signs and symbols, possibly even, you know, repetitions of rituals. I'm thinking of Philip Glass's production of Akhenaten and the, the repetitions of pharaonic language. The symbolists would have loved Akhenaten, let me tell you. Or I should say, actually, Akhenaten comes from a symbolist uh, tradition. In the original production of Peleus and Millicent, directed by Aurelian Marie Lunyapoa, there were no properties and no furniture. So here we are again in this sort of blank world. The lighting came from overhead. This is still the period where they have footlights. So the lights would be below and light up so that the audience could see your face, which is actually, it's so old fashioned and strange that it's now often used in the theater precisely because it looks so artificial in an interesting way. Uh, but anyway, they disbanded the footlights, which shocked many people, and only used down lighting. Now, you know when you're playing with a flashlight or something, and you, hand, you have the light above you, and then you have all of this down light. Everyone gets these long shadows, and their tip of their nose is illuminated, and the sockets of their eyes become deepened. So you, ha you have to use your imagination. There was a great deal of darkness on the stage, 
Gauzes were hung or scrimmed between the actors and the audience that gave the impression of, of being in a mist. So imagine, actually, that we ha you see this sometimes here, where, where we're separated from what we're looking at from a, an, a gauze that covers the entire s stage of, of the Chandler here. Uh, so there were also neutral backdrops in gray, and the actors spoke, some critics said that the actors spoke in a staccato chant like priests. You get the idea. <laughs> so it'd be interesting to see what that was like, surrounded by mist um, in all sort of colorless walls, floating through space, not rooted to particular objects on the stage. Now that was the opening, and it was so frightening to Maeterlinck that he wouldn't go. He was, he was afraid to go to his own opening. It was not particularly successful, but interestingly, other versions of it outside of Paris were. So for example, Mrs. Patrick Campbell, who is a very famous actress, in England, who, by the way, was the first Eliza Doolittle, Shaw's play Pygmalion, uh, she asked to do the play and was given permission in English with music by Gabrielle Faure. So this is interesting that even before we get to WC, we get to uh, Faure, and, and you have this sense that Metterlink somehow felt that music was important to interweave with this kind of symbolist world that he's creating. I think we could say that Metterling understood that it was his silences or absences of words that made his plays arresting. In the context of what we're now discussing of, of a, a sensual, um, a vibrant use of language and sound, in, in a, a way which arrests you. And as I said, it's not about what you think, it's about what you feel that is important here. So he saw music as a logical conduit, and this is why uh, he allowed Mrs. Patrick Campbell to seek out Foray. And I'm, I'm going to play one small a piece of a piece for you that you'll recognize, but it's very beautiful. This is Faure's Peleus and Melisande, the incidental music for the English production. So I want to repeat again that an entire new sort of discourse or a stirring of the pot amongst the elements of poetry, action, silence, and music would serve the symbolist movement uh, extraordinarily well. What I would like to do now is read to you or describe uh, one of his earlier successes, again, performed by Lunia Poa at the Teatro de Louvre, and this is called The Intruder. 
so I must set this stage for you so that you can imagine this. We see a domestic room of, you might say, a middle-class or upper-middle-class French family. There is a grandfather. He is blind. A number of people in the room tend to him throughout the play, saying, are you well? Can we help you? Etc. In the next room, the grandfather's daughter is dying. The daughter also has a baby who is dying. In the room with the grandfather are three nieces, an uncle, a brother-in-law, a nun who has come from a convent to help take care of the baby. They're waiting on another nun who is an older aunt. They're also waiting for the doctor. So it gives you an idea. And the staging involves people sitting in the room waiting. And the grandfather will say, who is here? Where are my three girls? Are you here? Here, we're here, grandfather. We're here, grandfather. We're here, grandfather. And then silence. People are waiting. You hear the rocking of a chair. Grandfather's become so restless. If you notice, he's just waiting. What are you talking about, girls? Mother, mother, mother is the baby. Girls, please be careful. We have a guest in the room. It's a guest in the room. Guest, guest, there's no guest in, guest in the room. Guest in the room. There's no, there's no guest here. Father, what is grandfather talking? Then you hear the creaking of the chair again, and then silence. Then you hear. Someone's at the door, someone's at the door, someone that was, of course, my attempt at a clock, all right? So, whatever. Then, then we hear the door again moving. Grandfather says, There's someone else in this room. Who did you come with, Peter? Peter's the brother the brother-in-law or something. Who did you come with? Etc. All right, so you get the idea that this goes on and these extraordinary silences. You know, when you work on radio, they say you, you really have to be very careful about a silence. That makes sense. But silence on the th- in the theater can be extraordinary if it's empowered or emboldened with sort of concentration and essence, you could say. And so anyway, the play manipulates a door. Who, who slammed that door? It's, and, and you can hear there's a conversation way down the hallway. This is really exciting to work with as a director, I have to tell you. It's wonderful to work with that kind of imagination. So what do we learn after these long silences? It's sort of sometimes excruciating and we're hearing noises that we don't quite know where they're coming from. We learn that only grandfather has known that death passed through the room and sat in the chair and turned the door. So you say, how, how do I make that into a play? What happens? So this is related to his aesthetic of the theater, and let me read for you. This is from an essay where he's talking about theater, and he's saying that he doesn't feel that large epic dramas or the classic theater that he's inherited as a European speaks to the kind of essential, sensual theater that he's imagining. And he, he's speaking here specifically about Othello and Hamlet and about the Greek plays. But listen to what he says. He says that he went to the theater. I had gone thither to the theater 
hoping that the beauty, the grandeur, and the earnestness of my humble day-by-day existence would for one instant be revealed to me that I would be shown the, I know not what, presence, power, or God that is ever within me in my room. I was yearning for one of the strange moments of a higher life that flit unperceived through my dreariest hours, whereas almost invariably all that I beheld on the stage was but a man who would tell me at wearisome length why he was jealous, why he poisoned, or why he killed. I have grown to believe that an old man seated in an armchair waiting patiently with his lamp beside him, giving unconscious ear to all the eternal laws that reign about his house, interpreting without comprehending the silence of doors and windows and the quivering voice of the light, submitting with bent hand and head to the presence of his soul and his destiny, an old man who conceives not of all the powers of the world like so many heedful servants are mingling and keeping vigil. All right, and then it goes on to say, I have grown to believe that this old man in motionless does yet live in the reality of a deeper, more human and more universal life than the lover who strangles his mistress, the captain who conquers the, in battle, or the husband who avenges his honor. So he's basically saying it's time to change the content of plays. This is part of the same impulse that Wagner has when he said, until a social revolution occurs, there can be no change really in art. So again, WC is not really a, a Wagnerian, but this impulse to change is very important. That's what people are saying now in our world that we live in. So this is what he's saying, this idea that these intimate moments that are prosaic, where a group of people are sitting around waiting for someone to die, has more tragedy and more profundity than someone running on with a sword. So it's an interesting thing. Think about it when you watch what we're looking at. Uh, Let let me just uh, finish telling you the story of this production. It was performed in England. It was much more successful. And this gave a number of people the idea that they would set music to it. So in addition to Foray, who was first, and Debussy, there were, maybe you know this, uh, there also Sibelius wrote incidental music, Schoenberg wrote incidental music, and Alexander Litvovsky, who is a, a well-known screen music writer, also has written music for Peleus and Millicent. But there are many more people to abstracting parts and writing songs and uh, mood pieces. So it's captured very important composers' um, interest and imagination. Let me just go back to where I was and say that he wouldn't go see his own play because it was very painful. He knew that they were going on. He, he knew that music was being attached. I think he saw it, and again, we're not talking about WC here, we're talking about Metterlink. I think he saw it in some other European capitals. But when it became an opera, he was euphoric because WC was extremely interesting, au courant, and hip person. I mean, he also outraged people, some people, but it was a very interesting person to be associated with. 
he basically said, yes, you may make the cuts. It is noteworthy that there aren't very many cuts. This, this was hardly ever done. Similar to um, Salome, uh, most, not most, but the, the, you come away from the opera feeling that you've seen the play that Oscar Wilde wrote, only the opera version, uh, you know, by Strauss. So the same way here, you come away from Debussy's uh, piece feeling that you have experienced Peleus and Millicent, even though he, he cut a couple scenes or s smaller sequences, he was happy with that. So when he heard that Debussy was going to work on this material, he was happy. He gave them permission to make the cuts. And uh, he also gave them the permission, uh, the opera house, to stage the piece in any way that they saw fit and to cast it. And so it got within two or three weeks of its premiere, and Maeterlinck started to have some sort of meltdown. Perhaps it was nerves. Who knows what, what it was? Uh, there is an answer. He wanted his uh, then mistress to play the lead, and it had been given to Mary Garden, who is a very interesting person you might, you might want to Google and look at. Uh, she was Scottish. She was a famous Scottish soprano. She was, again, very, very famous, uh, not only for her art of singing, but for the life that she led as an opera singer, like a rock star, really, and someone who was attractive to younger audiences. Uh, so she, Mary Garden, ended up playing the role and became famous for it. I remember seeing Mary Garden on television when I was in the late 1950s with a thick Scottish accent. And here was the sublime um, Millicent. And really it's Mary Garden who in, in many ways created our idea of who uh, Millicent is. But he didn't want these uh, Scottish lady singing. And also Dame Maggie Tate followed her in the role. And again, another person from the UK. He was not particularly happy. So uh, Maeterlinck refused to see it and didn't see it until about two years after Debussy had died. I should tell you, he came at one time to the door of Debussy and started banging the door with his walking stick and threatened to hit Debussy in the head. And Mrs. Debussy had to split them apart. He finally saw it in the 1920s and said, I was a thousand times wrong and Debussy was a thousand times right. So at least it's great that he came to a certain level of consciousness about his own work, which is considered to be one of the great works of, uh, of opera and his participation in it. But it, he, but you know, Debussy never got to hear that. I'm going to spend the rest of the time picking out things that I think you could, you could actually look at. The thing that struck me this time is I, I looked at it. In fact, um, I don't generally listen to the core operas that I know I'm going to speak on until I go back to listen to it as, as I did. So I haven't listened to Peleus and Millicent for maybe four or five years intensely, with a, sometimes with a score and sometimes looking at the libretto. And it struck me the folkloric nature of it. It's so elegant that I didn't think about that aspect of it. And there are, in fact, uh, you can find online people discussing these traditions. We have this person, Millicent, who appears in the forest, but at a spring. You remember that she drops her crown at the base of a lake. 
She's associated with water, of, of lakes, of fountains, of underground pools of water, of tears, of boats sailing away uh, in the play, swans, which we'll talk about in a minute. There's the sea. There is all of this water imagery. And this is where we find her at the beginning. And she can be associated with a lineage in folklore of water nymphs or women that have half women's bodies and half water nymph bodies. You also then have uh, the character of Golo. And we first meet him. He's coming out of the forest. He's been hunting. And he's in the tradition of men who change into beasts and capture maidens who come into the forest. And Golo actually is violent on stage. There's a terrible scene where he grabs her hair in front of the old king. In the version that I saw, he tried to strangle her with her hair, which is a long braid that goes down here. Uh, you can go online and seek a contemporary staging in Paris in, in 2016, I think, or 2017, with our baritone who will be coming here. She's in a very tall tower. It's like two stories high, and she undoes her hair and then drops it out like Rapunzel, and it keeps coming out and out and out and out. So it's, it's you know, it's impossible. It's a kind of surrealist, dreamlike uh, sequence of this uh, French woman with long, long red hair. So you can also find that on YouTube, and you, I think they might enjoy seeing that because it's a contemporary version of Peleos. Uh, so it looks aesthetically contemporary, but uh, is still telling the story. Of course, he, as I said, brings danger to the people on the stage. Also, his little son, he's using to spy on other people and to spy on potential sexual acts. This is very weird and strange. And Go Golo has a kind of animal quality uh, to him. All right, so that's another thing. Of course, grandfather, the protective male image, and you also have Genevieve, who is the mother of Golo and uh, Peleos, so a protective maternal figure. We have these in f folklore. And then we have Peleos, whom one person has suggested reminds them of Parsifal or of Lohengrin, and this, in a sense, innocent, sort of luminescent young character who doesn't quite understand what's going on, uh, who also, as a result of his actions, brings harm to himself and harm to other people. So it's, it's sort of um, a mess, and it's an interesting mess that they might enjoy discussing of what is a fairy tale, why are we attracted to fairy tale structures. Jung believed that a fairy tale was the collective dream of a people meaning a people who have a myth about a little mermaid. Why do the Danish have that particular myth? Why is she there protecting the harbor? That particular myth was chosen. Uh, there's a statue of her there. So think about this. It may be helpful. The next thing I would say is that you could talk about the liminality, meaning the idea of being caught between waking and sleeping. And again, as I said, Golo, he doesn't know where he is. He's lost when the peace begins. The same way Millicent doesn't know where she is. She doesn't remember why 
or what this crown is and why is she weeping into the pond? So this this feeling of it neither being day nor light, certainly in terms of design, later design, what they tried to do was remove the shock of the horizontal and the vertical lines on the stage. There, there were two important designers, Gordon Craig and uh, Adolf Appiah, who follow in this tradition of surrealism and keep stripping away and stripping away and stripping away material on the, uh, on the stage until it's primarily a Robert Wilson light box. You have this sense of a dream reality where things float in and float out. And this comes from Maeterlinck. The ends of scenes don't always seem to end where they should be ending, or you feel like you're caught in the middle of of a conversation. Do you have that feeling? You certainly get it when you see what Debussy is responding to uh, in the opera. So look out for that. What they're saying, it it seems to go out of focus. As I said, it's soft around the edges. Now, as for this atmosphere, there's a feeling in the presentation of much of the water of something luminescent and elegant and clear, and the water is a good place to be. But equally, the water is a frightening place to be, and the water can be stagnant and filled with disease, and, and you have these dripping stalactites and stalagmites, and it's a, ver- it's a very creepy place to be. So it can, as I said, it can either have a, a, a luminescent atmosphere or a, a stagnant and corrupt atmosphere. And the playwrights and theater people that we're talking about this time have the fashion of neurasthenia, and it's it's not really even a disease, but it was there. I mean, it's not medically a disease, but it was then considered medically a disease, which is the inability to have strength to live. Now, a lot of this had to do actually uh, with women wearing corsets and fainting. But there was this idea, as in Chekhov's Uncle Vanya, the beautiful Alenia, the character of Alenia, depending on the production, she sighs, she languorously lies on the sofa, she can't get enough energy to be fully together. So th- this was a k- kind of portrayal, not only of the women in the piece, or the, the woman, Melisan, but also of the men in the piece, of of just being out of sorts and sort of dying or wasting away because they don't have full vigor or rigor. Uh, That's what's interesting about Golot is that he seems to be a kind of forceful character who actually has to rage and go into an anger to use his power. He's also sort of disintegrating. Well, this is the worst kind of, when I say worst, I don't mean to use that pejoratively, but it's that kind of extreme sensibility, as I said, that comes from this feeling of neurasthenia, of being sucked of energy, and uh, this idea of synesthesia where you're so hyper-attuned to your neuroses and your nervous system that you're you're seeing all these things that a a person wouldn't see see otherwise. So uh, in a strange way, the neurasthenic has the same power that the blind father has, in that they're able to see, feel, hear things that other people uh, can't. So I, I wanted I want to show you some of these poems that they were attracted to. Here's Poe. 
their great hero. Bottomless vales and boundless floods and chasms and caves and titan woods with forms that no man can discover for the tears that drip all over. Mountains toppling evermore into seas without a shore, seas that restlessly aspire, surging unto skies of fire. Lakes that endlessly outspread their lone waters, lone and dead, their still waters, still and chilly with the snows of the lolling lily. That's Edgar Allan Poe. Now, here's Baudelaire, who is both translating Poe's poetry and also writing his own in Poe's style. But this becomes even more wicked in a way and more rotten when you hear it. Softly as brown-eyed angels rove, I will return to thy alcove and glide upon the night to thee, treading the shadows silently. And I will give to thee mine own kisses as icy as the moon and the caresses of a snake, cold gliding in the thorny brake. And when returns the livid morn, thou shalt find all my place forlorn and chilly till the falling night. Others would rule by tenderness over thy life and youthfulness, but I would conquer thee by fright. It's very scary. And um, when Peleus and Millicent was first done, I would say on a spectrum, there was a focus on the ethereal, the luminescent, the elegant. Now you can do this by searching the net and looking at some of the productions. They're focusing on the violence, which is implied in the play, meaning the language is violent at times. It's implied and you do see violence, but, but you know what I'm saying, as opposed to now the out and out violence. That's also something I would say just quickly, the space is not fixed. As I said, I don't always know where I am uh, or I know I'm by a tower, but I don't know where, where I am really. The actors are caught between this feeling of, of dread and of, of, of knowledge. So I had said this before, but let me read the end of this. Uh, he wanted everything to be about mood, atmosphere, mise-en-scene, which is the arrangement of the scenery and the decor, and the shifts of all of that, because the piece, even before the music, shifts very quickly from mood to mood to mood to mood to mood and back again constant shifts. And this was possible because of the micro compression of thematic, you're going to hear about this, but thematic chords and things that are repeated, broken up, uh, sent in new directions, and you might get a color under a particular word and then a new coloring. So it's shifting the word within that verbal sphere. Thank you. Tickets to Debussy's only opera are available now at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Opera.